What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three kids doing a really bad job of sneaking around our house at midnight with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and if it's okay with everyone else, instead of reviewing The Midnight Club today, I'm just going to tell a 30-minute long, vaguely related story. I'm Keith Baker, and I'm glad we had an extra three episodes of this. And I'm Austin Terry, and by golly, does Mike Flanagan love his mirror ghosts. He certainly does. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the newest Mike Flanagan Netflix project, The Midnight Club. But let's do a little preamble, because there's some little Easter eggs and references we're kind of throwing into conversation here, much like our friend. And when I say friend, I mean quite possibly our dearest friend. He was almost the fourth co-host on this show, and that is Mike Flanagan. A great director, a great writer, somebody that we've come to get excited to talk about when come Halloween season because, you know, he was kind of directing some fun movies, some fun projects here and there, but then Netflix picked him up and he's like, you know, I got this little project. It's probably nothing super serious, but, you know, it's The Haunting of Hill House, no big deal. And it became, at least for me, one of the best Netflix originals of all time. They made Blind Manor. It went from a very kind of scary character-driven piece to a very still character-driven piece, but more of like a gothic romance. And at the time, we were like, oh, that feels weird. How does that fit? But I think with uh, some years in between, it feels like, okay, it was different. Really enjoyed that. Mike Flanagan then's like, you know, I did these two bangers. No big deal. I've always wanted to tell this story about vampires on an island with religious freaks. Can I do that? They were like, sure. And that was Midnight Mass. And that came out last year. All three of us loved it. And here we are. It's time for more stories. Um, Mike Flanagan and Netflix are not stopping anytime soon because we have The Midnight Club that we're going to talk about today. We have The Fall of the House of Usher, which is going to be an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, which I'm very excited that comes out next year. So since we already know about that and it's done filming, I'm assuming that, you know, we're going to get every year (laughs) Mike Flanagan. So Without further ado, guys, uh, I'll leave it open to you. What is your thoughts? Just kind of remind everybody else, because we talked about Blind Manor on the podcast a couple years ago and Midnight Mass last year. So kind of just, you know, remind everybody of what you feel about Mike Flanagan's work in general, especially with the Netflix stuff. And what are your non-spoiler thoughts on the Midnight Club? Because I am really excited to talk about this one. I pretty much love everything Mike Flanagan's done, but Netflix at least. I think they're definitely all varying degrees of good, with Midnight Mass specifically being great. Going into the Midnight Club, I think it's really good. I think it's very well acted. It didn't really get to that great territory for me. I think it's it's definitely three episodes too long. There's really great story moments in this show. It, it never gets scary. I think it's the least scary thing that Mike Flanagan has done so far for Netflix. Um, there's an interesting through plot that kind of gets lost. It's it, For me, it kind of felt like Black Mirror. If there was a story in between each Black Mirror episode, it does have that anthology feel. And it just kind of felt... A little bit jumbled and like not very precise, which what we're used to from Mike Flanagan and his Netflix stuff. So I really enjoyed it, but I'm I'm still kind of up in the air on like how much I actually enjoyed this one, and maybe I'll figure that out as we talk about it more. This one was this one was tough. This one was it was long for me, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, definitely, there was a lot of lots I did like about it, which I'll get into later once we get past the spoiler warning. And there was definitely some like plot holes that were like, are they coming back to this? And then I got to the end, I was like. Are you kidding me? They never addressed this, that, this, like, you know, list one, two, three, four, five. I had like six bullet points. I'm like, they never addressed any of that. I'm like, are they going to come back to this in another season or what's going on? What's going on? Um, and yeah, it was just kind of all over the place for me. I just didn't know what they were trying to do. And I felt like they were building towards something in this series. 
you know, I'm getting to like episode like eight and nine. I'm like, okay, they're not getting to the point here. And then by episode 10, I'm like, they're really not getting to the point. Um, I'm like, what are they trying to do with this? I don't, I don't understand. So that's where I'm at. I'm not, I'm not, it's not to say I didn't like it as I, I did, but definitely was not what I was expecting. That's for sure. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Going into it, I felt nervous and I don't know why. But I, I was feeling weird feelings, <laughs> and uh, it started, and yeah, I'll tell you what, that first episode certainly did not make me feel any better. And I'm curious to see where you guys kind of fall later on, uh, without spoiling it. Once I pushed through those first maybe two, three episodes, I started to kind of find a good groove, particularly in the last half. I mean, this is 10 episodes, so I would say, uh, you know, that batch of um, like the second half of episodes I found really enjoyable and I was kind of flying through them whenever I had time. I felt like they were going by pretty quick, but that still didn't, you know, make up for the fact that I'm very confused by the way they chose to tell the story. It feels kind of like this strange amalgamation of like half of the haunting of like that next story and also just this random episodic like are you afraid of the dark on nickelodeon if you guys ever watched that show it's just like that show is literally just kids getting around a campfire and like the entire episode was just scary stories and that's kind of how this is it's like okay so they're trying to do that but then have an overarching plot and they certainly did not nail that balance in my opinion I, I do think there's a lot to like here, though. I think there's a lot of beautiful imagery, uh, storytelling, and the way they tackle certain things when it comes to cancer, depression, uh, addiction. I think, you know, Mike Flanagan, as always, he finds a really, really kind of powerful and interesting way to explore those things. Um, so that was still great to see here. Uh, he hasn't lost a step there. But yeah, I, I mean, to be frank, at least just at the outset, kind of talking about it for the first time, we haven't talked about it with anybody else except you guys. I think, I know Blind Manor, we had some issues at the time, but I think this might be my least favorite. I think this might be the worst Mike Flanagan outing so far. But I still liked it. I still liked it. I totally agree with you on the beginning. Um, I As soon as that first episode ended, I was like, oof, I'm not hooked yet. Usually with the Flanagan thing, I'm at least like interested with the first episode. And you know, knowing when you're not hooked on the first episode and you've got nine more to go, you're definitely going to feel that runtime. Um, I do agree. Once we get into the routine of scary story, uh, mystery in the house next episode, that was what worked for me the most in this show. But there's only really like four episodes that actually follow that routine. And then they break away to do other stuff. And when we get away from the really interesting stuff, that's where I felt the runtime for sure in this show. Um, the other thing that was like a big issue for me is usually Mike Flanagan does a really good job of establishing kind of the rules of his horror and like how the scary stuff plays into the world and how that's going to impact things and and why there are ghosts and that sort of stuff. And I never understood the rules of this one. I never understood why people were being scared, why there were ghosts, things like that. They never did a good job of explaining for me. And so I was a little bit let down there because I always like learning the mystery and the mystery in this one just they kind of forget about by the time they wrap on the first season. Yeah, that's pretty much where I was going earlier explaining my thoughts on you know my list of questions at the end it was like they they never really explained you know what's going on behind the scenes of these kids living in this hospice house if there was supposed to be a horror point they definitely missed out on it for me the other thing that might be driving the feeling of this isn't as scary or not um like as intriguing as some of the other seasons is this is based on the midnight club book by Christopher Pike and that's actually a young adult series. And Mike Flanagan has said that this is supposed to be a young adult show. So it might just feel like slightly aged down and some of the other stuff he's done as well. 
Yeah, I think that's quite possible because his other stuff, I mean, Midnight Mass was an original work, but both The Haunting of Hill House and Blind Manor, those are based on, you know, books as well. But maybe those books were a bit more for an older audience, so to speak. And yeah, I'm kind of with you, Austin. And I think I already mentioned it kind of inadvertently, but if you guys ever watched the Nickelodeon show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was a show that I watched as a kid that was literally just kid. It started kids would like walk out of the woods and they would sit around a campfire and tell a scary story. And like the entire episode was that story. And they've talked about how this is like the, you know, so to speak, the grown up version of that show, which is cool. But it's also tough when you try and do that. And my main issue is then you also try and have like this, you know, through line through 10 episodes. So that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it definitely didn't. Alrighty. Well, at this point, you know, I guess we'll do like a final recommendation. I mean, we all love Mike Flanagan. So before we get into spoiler territory, just one final shout out from you guys. Is this still worth watching? You know, because if it was like a movie or something, maybe it'd be easier to recommend. But this is 10 full episodes hour long. So just before we get into that spoiler zone, how are you guys feeling? Should everybody just watch his other stuff? Is this worth watching? Where are you at? I think it's worth watching there. Some of the short stories are really good and really fun. Um, It's just if you're looking for scares, this isn't it this time around. Yeah, I agree. Definitely worth watching. If you're a Mike Flanagan fan, you know, if you had a good time with the the previous three, then go ahead and watch this one, too, because it still has that Mike Flanagan feel to it. But just don't go into it expecting, you know, like the terrors of Hill House or maybe even like the more linear plot that like Bly Manor or Midnight Mass would give you. I agree. And that's kind of the fun thing is because I feel like whenever we talked about Bly Manor, we were like, you know what? This is a pretty good show. But if you want the scares of Hill House, you know, be aware of that. We talked about Midnight Mass. We're like, oh, my God, this show is incredible. But it's kind of different. So if you want the scares of Hill House, you know, just know that going in. It's not super scary. <laughs> I mean, Midnight Club's no different. I, I, I think, you know, at this point, it just seems like Mike Flanagan and the team are like, you know what? We know what we want to do for Hill House. It's going to be scary as shit. But for the rest of it, we, you know, we'll try and scare you, but it's not going to be to that level. And so that much I can appreciate. But yeah, just for like a last little recommendation, I still would recommend it. I, st- I still think it's good, especially that second half. I think it was so much better than the first half, at least for me. Um, yeah. But that being said, I do think if you're somebody that is a Mike Flanagan fan, particularly his Netflix work, for me at least, at least going into this conversation, uh, it is my least favorite of the four. So just know that at the top. And I remember in our Midnight Mass episode, when we talked about the general premise of this show, I remember specifically saying, wow, I really hope if it's a ghost story yeah. show, he's going to commit to the scares. It's going to be really scary this time around. This wasn't it. This was not it. No. But, you know, again, I don't know if he was going for it. So it's, it's tough to critique, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying. So there's your recommendation from us. Uh, take it as you will. But from this point on the show, we're going to be talking full spoilers. There's a lot to talk about. I'm very, very excited to get into the nitty gritty, whether it comes to the individual stories or the overarching plot. So if you have not watched The Midnight Club over on Netflix, go check it out and then come on back after you've watched it to get our thoughts. Or if you're somebody who doesn't care, that's what we're trying to say these days, guys. <laughs> Just stick with us. It's going to be a fun conversation. And don't worry. There is a ghost in a mirror once again. Hell yeah, bro. All right, everybody, welcome to Spoiler Territory. We're happy to have you here. Uh, We're talking the Midnight Club. So, Austin and Keith, as always, start us off this section with some good cast and crew talk. And it's going to be a lot of names you've heard before, because Mike Flanagan, 
is a true bro. He's a true friend, brother. And he works with all the same people, which I admire. And he's keeping Matt Saracen employed, which we can all greatly appreciate. You know what? Matt Saracen's yeah. on a hot streak because he was good in this too. I'm going to say it. <laughs> is there a starting quarterback, baby? Seven. <laughs> All right, so Midnight Mass, like we said, is of course created by Mike Flanagan, and this time he's joined by Leia Fong. Uh, Flanagan is, is known for all the Netflix stuff, The Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, um, and Fawn worked on Hill House and Once Upon a Time. It's also directed by Flanagan with Michael Fimonari, Emmanuel Asaikufar Jr., Axel Carolyn, Viet Nguyen, and Morgan Beggs joining as well. And it's written by Flanagan and his usual crew for the Netflix shows. This time he wrote, along with co-creator Leia Fong, James Flanagan, Julia Bicknell, Ellen Gale, and Tunika Hodge. And our score for the show is composed by the Newton Brothers. They also worked on Doctor Sleep and Midnight Mass, and of course, based on Midnight Club by Christopher Pike. And going into our cast, we have Iman Benson as Alonka, Igby Rigney as Kevin, Ruth Codd as Anya, Anara Simon as Sandra, Chris Sumter as Spencer, Anya as Sherry. Aya Firakawa as Natsuki, Sirian Sapkota as Amesh, and we got Samantha Sloyan returning, and she's playing Shasta, a.k.a. Julian Jane, and we got Zach Gilford as Mark, and Heather Loggenkamp as Dr. Stanton. And we also had some quick appearances from Flanagan regulars like Matt Bidel, Robert Longstreet, Crystal Ballant, Rahul Kohli, Alex Esso, Henry Thomas, and a lot more. All right, guys, there's our long casting crew. Any positives, any negatives, what do we got? Yeah, I have one particular standout, and it's not really even close for me. Uh, that's Ruth Codd as Anya. I thought this girl was fantastic, and this is also her debut. This is the first thing she's ever been in, um, and she was incredible, super emotional. She definitely carried that first half for me. Like I said, that first half was very slow. The way she balances her rage with her rage with the illness and then also her compassion for the people she's close to, um, and then also her like heartbreaking backstory I thought she gave the most emotional performance in a show chock full of emotional performances, and she was incredible. I would say, like, if I had to shout out, like, two, since there's so many, I'll shout out two at once. I'll do Chris Sumter. I thought he was really good as Spencer. He definitely brought a lot of emotional uh, support as well to the cast. Um, I liked, like, whenever he was, uh, like, kind of playing his characters in his short stories, I thought he did a really good job. And then I'll shout out uh, our main gal, uh, Iman Benson as Alonka. Uh, I thought she carried the show really well as being the main head kid um, out of the kids and how she was kind of the more curious out of the bunch. Um, and I think she kind of brought, I just liked her character overall, how she kind of brought a different spin on things because I feel like they were a different different group before she came along. So uh, yeah, Iman Benson and Chris Sumter. I'll shout out those two. Yeah, so like I said, I in all seriousness, I thought everybody was great. I think this is just such a great cast overall, such... Just fantastic performances, and most of them are younger performers, so it's just great to be introduced to these people. And even though I have problems with how this show was kind of paced, I still think a lot of the individual writing and directing was really something to kind of behold. Uh, I did actually, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but when we, whenever we talk about TV at least, but I did want to shout out a specific kind of pairing, because episode 8 was called A Road to Nowhere. And this is one where we got Natsuki telling her story, not to the Midnight Club, but to Amesh about her depression. And the episode was called Road to Nowhere. And this one was directed by Viet Nguyen and written by Julia Bicknell and Mike Flanagan. And I just thought this was a pretty, pretty fantastic and scary and sad and beautiful and just powerful way 
uh, to tell a story about depression and suicide and uh, meeting, you know, of course, the Flanagan regulars of Alex Esso and Henry Thomas, who's I mean, Henry Thomas has been in everything <laughs> like Mike Flanagan has done uh, and having them be like the quote unquote, like angels on her shoulder. I mean, I thought that that story really uh, I got pretty emotional during that episode um, and I didn't even love the show overall, but that individual episode was so powerful. So I just feel like I have to call out the team behind it because it was so good and so well told. So. That one is my main shout out. It had a really good mystery behind it, too. I kept waiting to find out like why they were stuck in this loop. So I, that one was like, there's another story I liked more, but that episode, I think, was like the peak of the show for me. Yeah. 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 Same here. That's probably one of my favorites as well. And not just like the story behind it, but like also like the visuals on that one, too, looked really cool. Like the, the road and the fog. And the fact that the fog was the carbon monoxide and like all this like yeah. shit hitting the window was like the tennis ball like in the garage and stuff like that. Yeah. It was like some great visual storytelling. Yeah. That one actually felt like a Mike Flanagan show. Just that single episode. Like there's stuff you can go back and catch if you rewatch it. And like all the all those aspects that we love about him were are all in that episode. All right. Well, moving on. Lots of people to shout out. For sure. Uh, but let's talk about, you know, you got our thoughts and we're a little bit down on the show, but let's see what the critics had to say. So the Midnight Club currently holds an approval rating of 87 percent over on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 7.4 out of 10. The website's critical consensus is Mike Flanagan's hot streak of heartfelt horror stories continues strong in the Midnight Club, a tale of terminal teenagers told with jolts and joie de vivre. Praise went toward the ensemble cast, direction, the atmosphere, and the premise itself, while some did criticize the amount of time given to the anthology and episodic stories versus the actual overarching plot and an ending that left potentially too many doors open. So we've kind of talked about our thoughts on the show leading up to this point. I think there's some uh, connections between our thoughts and the critics. So anything stand out to you that you guys want to call it before we get into our freeform discussion? Yeah, the call out of the amount of time given to the anthology versus the actual main plot of the show. I totally agree with, like I said, I think the main plot for sure gets lost. Uh, when we get to episode 10 and we still haven't learned about the actual ghosts that are in the house, that was very confusing to me. I really thought there was going to be more to that basement and like the stuff that happened there with the cult. And whenever um, Julie Jaynes actually comes back to the house, it ends. That's a really great cliffhanger in that episode. And then the next episode is just all wrapped up very quickly. So right when I was like expecting like, okay, here comes the scary stuff. Let's see where this goes for the rest of the show. They just did away with that so quickly. So I totally agree with that criticism. Yeah, I think I agree with that. We definitely got teased a couple couple of times with the basement stuff where we're like, yeah, you're thinking you're about to get something and it just gets yanked away yet again. I definitely am wondering about like the, the two old people that people keep seeing. Like, did they really wrap that up well? What what was Julia's intentions? There's so many questions I have that got thrown to the wayside, like I said. And what they turned into a good story with the kids and their and their illnesses and all that, they did a good job with. But I feel like they're trying to tell something, you know, in the background, but they just did they just, I don't know, they just didn't do it. <laughs> didn't do it for me. So The point where I'm still kind of stuck is just that it, it was so fascinating watching this show. Cause I kind of knew going in that it was gonna be the whole like most episodes would probably focus on one of the kids telling a story to the Midnight Club, right? Telling one of their supposed scary stories. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. But in a lot of the episodes, the way it was presented, it was just like the episode starts, here's the story, and then quickly cut at the end to, you know, kids walking down the hallway and then, whoa, I'm back in the past. Or, whoa, have you seen this picture? Like, th this is a clue and stuff like that. 
and they were interesting clues at the time, but I don't know. I just don't think the show ever figured out that good balance of like, here are individual stories from the kids and here's the overarching plot. And we'll get into it later because I think there is a lot of really subtle and fascinating um, elements of the stories the kids were telling that kind of um, not adheres you to them, but it makes you understand the actual kid, right? Because a lot of the stories that the kids are telling are about like, I guess, fictional versions of themselves, but they really do a good job of like helping you understand them more. So I love that stuff. I'm excited to talk about my favorite elements of that. But it's so funny reading like the Wikipedia because I have the Wikipedia pulled up whenever we talk about stuff on an episode. And it's like I'm looking at the 10 uh, episode list, like the descriptions of the episodes. And each of them are like f- like three sentences long, and it's all like the overarching plot. And then really quickly, I'm not even joking. It'll just in each episode it says, and then Spencer tells his story to the Midnight Club. It's like even the people writing this didn't really care because it doesn't influence the main plot too much. In some like small parts here and there, it does, but certainly not enough by the end. I think the biggest issue is they set up like in the opening of the show that. Elanka is there to find a way to live and she picked this place specifically so they're establishing that mystery and what we learn about the actual Brightcliff like home and stuff could just be one episode of the show like we didn't learn enough about this mystery to fill a 10 episode show a lot of it was filler with stuff that was very cool stories but this isn't an anthology it's a series so a lot of the stuff I felt like should have tied together more and it just by the time we get to the 10th episode it felt like a lot of waste of time all right. Well, you know, I feel like we're kind of a uh, we're jumping into a lot of things real quick here. I think it's because we're passionate about, you know, Flanagan stuff. And I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel. I feel like we want to like this one more than we actually did. So I think we're trying to kind of rationalize maybe why we didn't and how we could more, uh, which isn't always a terrible thing. But I think that's probably a good time to bring in our freeform discussion. This is just the part of the show where, you know, we just pulled up a Google Doc. We each wrote down some points that were something that we felt needed to be talked about more in depth with this show. I'll start us off as usual, just with a general kind of opening. Is there anything kind of stand out about this show that you think needs to be said as kind of a, like a good general opening point that we haven't gotten to yet? Is there something that you're still kind of itching to say that we haven't mentioned? Yeah, let's talk about the house itself. Um, so the Brightcliff Estate is a place where right now it's a hospice for terminally ill kids can go to live out their final days. But then it also has this dark history. Um, and the, the dark history is what I wanted to learn a lot more about in this show. And every time we get a new reveal with the hourglass, finding the book, uh, finding the basement, all that stuff, it felt like, OK, here's where the show is really going to pick up now. And we're going to get that really interesting mystery. And then we, we never kind of really got there, at least for me. Um, so I want to know just in general, what were you guys most interested in learning about the house? Um, and then how, what parts of like the house stuff did you like and what, what did you want more of? You know, it's weird because even though I didn't love the show, I feel like I loved a lot about the house and the reveals themselves, getting to kind of, uh, figure out more rooms and then the basement. And then there's this hourglass. What is this hourglass? Like it's showing up in random pictures and oh, it's in the elevator. It can't be just like for show, right? And then there's a whole book about it. And then we meet other characters and they have tattoos of it. Uh, I didn't really fall in love with the house until the basement reveal, just because I thought that was so cool. And I thought like they could have just had it be like a really gross looking like under underground area of the house. And while it was really dark, 
I love that there was like, you know, the beds were around, you have these beautiful tapestries and they, the whole idea of like, well, this is the original like, you know, place where uh, people slept. I was like, oh, OK. So, yeah, there was tons of stuff that I really liked about the house. I think it was a great setting is what I'm getting at. Um, but then when it got towards the end, that started to kind of fall off a bit. Then it's like, well, you know, that remember that basement reveal? Well. Hey, I'm a character you've met. My name's Shasta. Remember me? I'm Samantha Sloyan. <laughs> it's like, now I'm just going to, uh, here's the last episode, and I have to obviously reveal I'm the villain and uh, come down to the basement that, I, that like, we've gotten accustomed to and do something different. It was just like they introduced all these things, and they kind of broke all the rules towards the end. Uh, so I didn't love that stuff. Now, in general, though, I did kind of like this place as a setting for, you know, terminally ill um, young people because I thought, you know, it, it felt kind of like claustrophobic, but also kind of at the same way <sighs> comforting in a weird way, which I thought was kind of important. And we'll get we'll get to, to it later. I want to bring it up now, but the whole idea of like you know, being sick, accepting that, and then luck that comes with, like, diagnosis, like, changing, all of that, uh, that kind of played a bigger part towards the end, and I thought all of that with the house made a whole lot of sense. But anyway, don't want to get to that yet, but in general, I really like the setting. I thought, I thought it was pretty good, even though there were some very bonkers elements of the story that, like, could not have existed without this house. <laughs> I really like the firelit library too, oh, especially yeah. since we spend a lot of time there. It just felt very cozy and like I could see myself wanting to hang out there and like listen to ghost stories in that setting. I think it'd be very fun. Um, I did like the history of the house. Just for me, there wasn't enough of it, especially when they revealed there used to be this cult that operated there. But then there's like another character that says, oh, there was even somebody before the cult and they were yeah. worse and that didn't yeah. go anywhere. And I was like, wow, what does that mean? Um, it was it was a lot of like really interesting teases that just never paid off, and so it was like constantly like, oh, I'm intrigued again, and then realizing we're not going to get those answers was was just a letdown by the time we finished. Yeah, and because they didn't jump into any of those points, the house itself didn't really feel all that creepy to me. Like you said, man, like it it actually had kind of a comfortable feeling. Like it looks like okay, that maybe that's not a bad place for these terminally terminally ill kids to go. I mean, their their rooms and their beds looked like comfy. They weren't like in hospital rooms, you know, so it looks like they were, to me, it seemed like a good place to go if you, if you had that going, you know, if you had that terminal illness going on. I guess, you know what, I'm kind of, I know I'm skipping, we're all skipping around here, but I'm kind of hard pressed to not bring it up now, talking about just the house itself. I guess with the, with the Mike Flanagan stuff, uh, with this being his fourth Netflix project, his series, I guess, so to speak, I've just gotten used to the whole miniseries vibe. It was very surprising and kind of underwhelming. But whenever, Austin, you were talking about how, like, with the history of the house, like, there was some interesting stuff there, but then it got immediately uninteresting, and I agree with you, because it just felt like they forgot about it or just didn't care to elaborate. Is part of that because they're trying to do more of these stories? Should we talk about that now? Like, is there going to be more of this? Are they trying to do more of this? Because I think even though we're not at the, we're not talking about the end yet, <laughs> like, if there isn't more of this... That seems strange because the way they told the story is bizarre if there's not going to be more. <laughs> there is supposed to be more, okay. which that was not something I knew going into it. Same here. The Midnight Club is like a series of young adult books. So there are a lot more stories with the source material they can tell. Um, and then, too, Mike Flanagan has said that there are 
he wants to do a season two, but he's waiting on Netflix to greenlight it. So they, they wrote this with the intention of there being a second season. Once Netflix sees the performance from how well it does on streaming, then they'll give him like the go ahead to do that or not. Okay, mm. good to know. Because I went in the same way. I just went in expecting this was going to be a one and done, another Flanagan, you know, mini series. And whenever it ended with like open ended stuff, I was kind of surprised for the first time. So I don't want to hold that against the show. So I wanted to kind of get it out of the way now because I didn't really know that. Mike Flanagan also had a weird statement of saying, even even if there's not a season two, we will still get answers to our questions, okay, which I don't know how we'll, we'll get those answers without a season two. Hmm. <laughs> it seems vaguely threatening. <laughs> He's just going to post on his Instagram, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> hey, here's some pictures. <laughs> He just leaks the, the script for season two. Well, here you guys go you if you want to read it. <laughs> so I guess since we are bouncing around, I mean, the short stories are pretty key in this show. My favorite was um, See You Later, which is Ahmed's story, the sci-fi one with the game uh, that has like kind of world ending. It's got Rahul Kohli in it. I really like that sci-fi twist. I like the like kind of time travel aspect of it, too. It was I did not think we would get like a really cool sci-fi story in this show. Uh, so that was new and like exciting for me. Um, that, that held my interest. I think the most out of all the short stories. I, w- I would say, um, probably Kevin's, uh, hammer murderer short story was pretty, was pretty cool. The three parter. <laughs> yeah. And also the one they gave the most time to, but yeah, very cool. Pretty, the silent screaming I thought was like pretty unnerving in that story yeah. too. Yeah. I kind of hated that story, but I came, I came around to it at the end. I was like, why the hell are we getting so much? Like, why is Kevin's story getting the most, uh, like, parts of anybody else? Because this story doesn't seem to be telling me anything. Um, and then the element towards the end of kind of, it's been passed down to me. And I felt like they were talking about the element of, like, cancer and kind of, geni- like, your predispositions and, like, that kind of stuff being passed down to you and stuff like that, and how Kevin is a character, like, he really, he has, he has a great girlfriend, right? Somebody that clearly loves him and is supporting him, but he still feels like at the end of the day that he should break up with her because there's somebody else to pursue, and also he doesn't want to, you know, have her deal with that and i thought a lot of his story towards the end kind of made that clear maybe the people that he was killing in those stories it was kind of like a a metaphor so to speak of people that he was trying to you know relieve of having to deal with his diagnosis in the real world i obviously it's a story it's not all real but just that one was a weird one for me because i was like what the fuck is the point of this three-part serial killer story (laughs) but then at the end i was like oh shit they're kind of commenting on that element of cancer affecting other people, not just you as the person that has it. And then kind of that genetic predisposition. I was like, okay, this is really, yeah. Okay. This is coming together. It's sad. It's fucked up. And it, it kind of got powerful towards the end. So I, I enjoyed that too. I also like the element of that story of Kevin in, in real life as a people pleaser and he wants to make everybody happy. And he feels like if he can't make people happy, then he's hurting them. So he should just kind of be off on his own. And so I like that in the serial killer story, he thinks the best solution there is to lock that person away to keep him from hurting anybody else. I will say the worst short story by far for me was Give Me a Kiss, which was the black and white detective story. That was the episode where I found myself like looking up and going, oh, I'm actually really not enjoying this show right now. I appreciated it because it was Sandra's kind of uh, pseudo apology to Spencer for her commentary. So she created kind of this weird 
big, grandiose story, but it is still a story from the perspective of somebody that is so bought into Catholicism and doesn't understand uh, somebody that might be gay. But she's trying, so there's parts of the story that you can see that, so I appreciated it, but that kind of goes back to the original criticism us, and it's like, I really love the moment they have after that story is told, and I really appreciate Santa for telling that story. It's just, did the story need to be 40 minutes of that episode? And I don't know if it needed to be. It just, I think they could have cut some stuff out, paced it better, just edited it better, because I, I love the ending of it. But I didn't really love much of the story itself. And that's the problem with a lot of these episodes. I kind of feel that way about Kevin's story, to be honest. Like, I like this story a lot, but that one could have been condensed to oh, yeah. a 30, 30, 35 minutes. It didn't need to be a three-parter. I did like how I did like how every time it ended, though, he was like, stay alive if you want to hear more. I like, again, I love the ending of it. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever, the, whenever he finished that in the last episode, then he was like, but Alanka, what about your story? And I was like, I forgot Alanka was telling a story. <laughs> I forgot about the whole witch, as they called it, storyline. But okay, I guess we'll do a few minutes of that. And it was not very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not technically a story, but I guess with the way like the show works, we could call out episode seven, which was called Anya. And that's the episode that starts with Anya in that weird kind of a, alternate reality so to speak where the ritual worked and she is kind of living her life after getting out and everybody else uh, all of her other friends have died and then it kind of comes to light later that that is just this fantasy that her friends have uh, crafted and are kind of communicating with her through the intercom as she's dying so not technically a midnight club story but i thought very you know beautiful in its own right it was very well put together, but once again, with that one for me, my favorite part was the end of the story when we see them all grow old together. Also a bit predictable. Oh, for sure. By the end of the show, I was bought in and I was a big fan of all of the characters, with the exception of Sherry. Because the show also forgot about Sherry. <laughs> she had some incredible moments in this show. Maybe some of the best. With like getting the wig uh, for Alonka. That was awesome. It just felt weird. The whole Midnight Club aspect. And like everybody gets a story. And then Sherry just sits there in episode one. And is like, I'm still working on mine. And then in episode 10 ends. And like we haven't heard from her. So I guess in season two we'll get more. But I, I like that character. She had some great moments, but she just felt like such an odd one out compared to the rest of the cast because of that. I agree, too, that she was the odd one out. But I was actually going to say Sherry was the one I think I warmed to the most. Ooh. I thought she was very quirky and funny by the time it ended. I think by far my favorite, though, out of everybody was a mesh. Um, I thought he was super funny. I liked his like quirky, like the, the gamer guy in there and um, him trying to have his like first relationship, but then he's also dying and terminally ill. I just, I really felt for the guy and he was my standout character, I think. Yeah. I'm kind of with you on Sherry. Uh, Sherry was an interesting one because yeah, she, she, I think she was probably the least dramatic out of all of them. She kind of just was, she kind of just did her own thing, you know, kind of, you can definitely tell she was probably more at peace with, you know, her diagnosis and a lot of the other ones were, had a lot of humility to her. You know, she, whenever she was telling, um, uh, Spencer about telling her parents or coming out to her parents and all that. She's like, 
I didn't wasn't that brave of me because my parents didn't really give a shit. But she didn't like didn't say it in like like a crying kind of way. She was just kind of being honest. Um yeah, she definitely felt like the odd one out because of how like just happy she was. So yeah, I kind of I I kind of forgot about her sometimes. I'm like, oh yeah, I forget she's in this. <laughs> That's what I mean, I guess. I just like she was the one that I forgot about. But also, kind of the flip side is because of that, Keith, that made me really appreciate like Spencer's like later in the show relationship with her, particularly when it came to his family coming to visit, and it was the first time that she kind of participated in family day. Thought that was an incredible moment. I think Spencer he became such a great vector for a lot of the characters. I just love seeing his interactions with everybody. Um, like a very happy-go-lucky character, very optimistic. But then whenever he wasn't, and you realize that he has way more going on, and even if he wasn't dying of cancer, he'd be dying of AIDS. Like It's like, oh, man, this is a, there's a lot more to this character than I thought. And his interactions with Zach Guilford and like later that community that he's introduced to, and then just his family and everything. I mean, what, what a phenomenal character. I thought he was great. And even Sandra, like we, we mentioned earlier with her story that we didn't, also didn't like with her noir story. Uh, their relationship became quite easy to root for, you know, as being people that are from very far opposites in terms of beliefs, but uh, they were able to kind of find common ground, and that was really cool. So, yeah, great character. Uh, loved how he kind of interacted with everybody. All right, so we've had like a really, I think, in-depth conversation about uh, the individual stories that the Midnight Club uh, were telling. I think a lot of them were very good. A lot of them maybe mixed or whatever, but eventually they found a good way towards the end. But I want to talk about uh, something that hit me a few episodes in. It sounds like based on our original thoughts, uh, even in the non-spoiler section, you guys feel the same way. But how did you feel when you kind of realized maybe like three, four episodes in that they were going to continue telling these like episode by episode stories, but there was still this kind of through line? Right. Like when did it hit you that maybe you weren't getting what you wanted, if that makes sense? Like at any point were you disappointed that this was kind of an episodic show in that sense, but they were still trying to tell this, you know, uh, story by episode like, oh, here's the picture. Oh, here's the hourglass. Here's the elevator button. Here's the Dewey Decimal si like Decimal System thing that we just figured out. Like, was that enough for you by episode or did you need more? Like, was the balance off? That's what I kind of want to know. Yeah, where I realized the balance was really off was actually um, episode four, which is that detective story. It's Give Me a Kiss. And the reason for that is, is one, like I said, I really didn't like that story. And that was the entire episode. But two, we're coming off of episode three, which is The Wicked Heart. And that's where we first discover the basement. And we realize that Alonka is on to something with the symbols. She finds the hourglass button in the elevator that takes her down. And that's a huge reveal um, at the end of that episode. But then what ends up happening is they all the kids come down, they check it out, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a basement. And then they go back upstairs and tell another short story. So that's when I was like, oh, the balance is really off here because I felt like a lot of that episode should have been more so dedicated to the mystery because we're coming off of a huge reveal in the prior episode. Did we need a, a, a story from every every person? Because maybe, maybe the other half of this show could have been fleshing out the whole haunted house, the cults, and all that kind of stuff. All the stuff that was going on in the background that we didn't get. And doesn't it kind of feel like naturally, like it's great at the beginning when they're meeting and telling stories, it's a fun element, but just like if you're a character in this show and you realize everyone is seeing a shadow or a ghost or something, don't you think at some point it would more naturally shift to, 
we're not going to sit at midnight and tell stories every night anymore. We're going to get up at midnight and investigate what the hell's going on in this house that we're sleeping in and all this creepy stuff keeps happening. That's what I was hoping for. I thought they were going to, I thought the short stories were cool, but it's like, did they need to be 30 minutes each from every character? Like still have the short stories, but have maybe like 10 minutes of an episode. And then like you said, Austin, now they're meeting up to be like, okay, I went to the library and I found this book that connected to this person that was here in the 1930s. And, you know, like they're doing more of like a mystery uh, kind of thing, uh, trying to, you know, flesh out what's going on in the house and what what the whole, what the history has to do with them seeing these visions now. Uh, that would have been really cool. That was, and that's what I was hoping for. If you're going to do that, just pay it off. Like I, I'm fine to hear these stories episode to episode as long as there's like a great payoff, but the sad truth was all the stuff that you guys are talking about, like all these little hints, all these little uh, bits and pieces they were giving us were not resolved at the end. Like whenever Alonka goes to the Harry Potter world, as I call it, which is basically just her traveling back to, you know, like the 60s or whatever it is in this case, she does it multiple times. And then she also like sees multiple ghosts and then Kevin's there and it's like, oh, what does that mean? And the end of the show doesn't tell us. All we see is a photo of the two ghosts that they're seeing. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying, Keith, at the beginning. Like, the ghosts that she's seeing are the people that built the house. So we see that very briefly in a photo. And then it cuts to Dr. Stanton pulling off a wig, implying that maybe she's sick as well. And then she has the hourglass on her. So she's also part of the cult, I guess. And it's like, wow. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm assuming it's, I'm assuming what that's implying with Dr. Stanton is, is she's doing what Shasta was trying to do, which is all these kids are dying around her and she's absorbing their life to stay alive. That's what I was kind of thinking too. Is like, okay, maybe this isn't something where uh, they're getting cured. Yeah, they tie Shasta's, I mean, Julia Jane's thing with Sandra. And the idea that Dr. Stanton, who I guess may be a villain, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but the point being, it kind of still stands that there's something different between like hoping for something to change with your diagnosis. Like whether it be through prayer, like somebody like Sandra or just belief or hope, or it doesn't really matter. Uh, and then luck. And I really like that they talked about that in the show. And it, it's clearly on purpose that. After doing this ritual that was supposed to save Anya, like the person that got quote unquote saved was Sandra, the person, the only person out of the Midnight Club that didn't believe in what they were doing. Um, and I really liked when later they were like, yeah, um, she was just misdiagnosed. And then Dr. Stanton's like, yeah, Julia Jane, she thought like there was some magic going on, but there wasn't magic. She just was misdiagnosed or she got lucky, lost a terminal diagnosis, but then for whatever reason, she couldn't accept that she was lucky and then just kept trying to fight and fight to, uh, you know, uh, keep the status that she had. So then whenever Austin was like, yeah, she keeps getting sick. She's doing all these crazy rituals and stuff. And I, I just saw all, I, I kept seeing through that. Like, it just, like, that's another thing that Austin mentioned at the top. It's like, it just, it, it was so predictable. I never believed that Samantha Sloyan, sorry, <laughs> that you were uh, somebody I should be rooting for over here. Well, it's honestly comical because when they first meet in the woods and she goes, hi, I'm Shasta. In my head, I was like, oh, don't you mean Julia Jane? Because it's very obvious where this is headed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. And then whenever she finds the the six digit number in the painting, and she's like, "Oh, this, this, it can't be a birthday. What is it?" And I'm like, "You love books. It's the Dewey Decimal <laughs> System. <laughs> Go find it." You're clearly not a bright girl. <laughs> they keep calling her that. <laughs> hey, bright girl. <laughs> hey, bright girl. <laughs> what did you guys think of the rituals in general? Because I thought where this was headed was they were going to do this ritual and they were going to summon something or like it was going to get scary. And that once again did not happen. Yeah, I guess just real quick to follow up on my last point. I liked that the ultimate ending was just that the ritual didn't work. And uh, whenever we're looking back in the past with Julia Jane, she just got lucky with something else. She thought the ritual worked, but it didn't. And then she kept creating these like excuses, excuses, and then she got sick again. And that's why she's trying to get back into Brightcliffe. I, I, I like that element of the show. And then Sandra, as somebody that doesn't believe in the ritual, obviously, she happens to get uh, cured. But it's like, oh, she's not cured. She's just it was a misdiagnosis. She's not terminal. She's still sick, but, you know, she has a chance. And they say she had gone in for that testing a week prior. So there's no way they can, like, misinterpret that the ritual just happened to cure Sandra. Like it was already in process. Right. So I liked that there was that stuff telling us, hey, all of this crazy supernatural stuff, it's not actually working. It's just sometimes, yeah, you're sick and you, you might be dying, but then it, it might not happen. And it happens to maybe unsuspecting people. So I like that element of it, but I want to keep talking about kind of that supernatural fact. Like often you said, I mean, were you guys hoping that something would get scary or like something would come in? I mean, never... I, at least I can speak from my perspective in that Anya episode, never like they're doing the ritual and like that shadow monster kind of peers down at the end and tries to grab her. I was like, oh, shit, maybe there is something to this. Maybe like the ritual is actually summoning something or there's at least something like evil following them. Like, I didn't really know. So by the end, it seems like it's just, you know, <laughs> cancer. But in this case, you know, maybe there is a. Maybe they could have done something different. I don't know. I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out if I would have preferred a supernatural element. Yeah, the shadow monster is another thing where, you know, the ritual episode ends with it reaching down and grabbing Anya. And then the next episode opens with the full Anya-centric episode, which in a vacuum is a great episode. But coming off of a prior episode where I'm excited to see what the scary thing is going to be that's happening, that was like an, another weird letdown for me of... We've, we're finally right on the cusp of getting some sort of mystery or, or scary monster or something, and then we pull back again and, and do something more in line with like the short story element. And I, I guess it they made it pretty apparent that the kids who were seeing these visions of the monsters and all that in the house were the ones who probably be, who are the ones who believed in the rituals the most. I guess. I think the shadow one's a little different. I think the kids seeing the shadow monster are the ones who are about to die because they say the prior roommate saw the shadow, then Tristan saw the shadow, and then Anya saw the shadow, and, and all three of them are the ones that died in the show. And then Amesh, in the last episode, he has that great, really sad scene where he's sitting with uh, Natsuki in the bed, and he's saying that like, his vision's starting to go, and like he can't see his peripherals, but he talks about like the shadow. So you could attribute that to just being, well, that happens with somebody with your type of cancer, uh, which it seems like that's what she's trying to say. But, you know, if you're trying to buy into, you know, maybe what Mike Flanagan's trying to sell us, maybe he's, you know, the next one to die based on that uh, uh, information in the last episode. So, yeah, hard to tell. And they say once with his disease, once your vision goes, like the end is pretty close. So it would also make sense. He might be seeing the shadow monster. Right. Right. 
Which Mike Flanagan never wants his monsters to actually be scary. He wants it to be trauma. So exactly, if the yeah. big scary thing in the show is just trauma of someone about to die, then that would also track for Mike Flanagan's prior stuff. Yeah, and that kind of all ties into the you know his monsters like this old man that Kevin talks about, and like the older woman that we see so many times with Alanka, and she says, "I'm hungry," uh, and it turns out they are the people that built the house, but we don't find anything about them. It's like to your point mm-hmm. about you know Austin, what Mike Flanagan strives for as monsters. Is there something that we missed here? I think maybe you could argue there's something with Kevin and the older woman because it's very weird that Alanka went down to the basement when the older woman was crying and like put her hand on her shoulder. And then Kevin's like, whoa. And then he turns around like, why the hell like, are they connected? That seems very weird. Other than that, though, what are we missing here? Like, what are the point of these monsters? Like, you know, Mike, like you said, Mike Flanagan, like, you know, he, the monsters usually represent trauma, but we don't know what these represent yet because maybe there's going to be a season two. It's odd that, like, in 10 episodes that were hour long, we didn't get anything from these. They just kind of popped up and did jump scares every now and then. I think, honestly, they're they're just trying to leave room for a season two. That's why I think we didn't learn a lot about these creatures. With the whole Kevin angle, I, I thought for sure we were going to learn more about him sleepwalking and waking up in the basement every night. That seems like a pretty big deal if that's happening yeah. to him every single night. He says most nights he's down there and he's, like, asleep in the bed, which sounds terrifying. I would have loved to learn more about that. I'm also curious about um, Julia's relationship with Stanton. And it seems like Stanton's pretty comfortable with Julia being kind of, you know, around. She's like, oh, yeah, she's been arrested three times for trespassing. Right. That's, that's an important line, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, is she doing that shit every time? Is she bringing kids down there to try to cure them? Trying to, is she trying to convince people that she can cure them? Is she bringing some of her uh, good humor company co-workers down there to to poison them and collect their souls and all that so what's happened the past three times that she's been arrested and of course also the question is they they said it pretty easily especially on the um uh julia jane side like she keeps talking about dr stanton and like trying to get as close to the land as she can uh, because there's you know power at bright cliff but she can't you know be there it's like oh that probably means that you're not supposed to be there and then, of course, by the end, the point that, like you said, Keith, Stanton clearly knows Julia and they, they know each other. They've known each other for a long time. But then you just kind of throw this random twist at the end. And by the end, I mean, literally the last shot is that Stanton has the same tattoo, like the the five goddess or the cult tattoo, whatever you want to call it. So they both share that. So what are they implying here? Yeah, I, I just didn't really know how to kind of take that whole ending to that story, because it seems like they're trying to imply that, you know, Stan's in on it, too. So I don't know if she's supposed to be bad. Is she reformed? Good. I, I don't know. I don't know. What, I mean, what do you think, Austin? The weird thing for me with Stanton is that in the beginning, she says she has a kid who died of a terminal illness. So is she in on it because she was trying to do the ritual stuff to save her kid? Why does she removing a wig? Does she have an illness? They did a really good job of making her stay good for the majority of the show. I thought for sure with her being the head doctor, there was going to be something dark with her. She's a very like kind and reassuring presence to all these kids. They did a great job with her character. So this did seem like a reveal that came out of nowhere to me. It didn't feel earned. It just felt like a, like a, a cliffhanger for the sake of having a cliffhanger. It almost seemed to imply in the same way that like, oh, is Dr. Stanton either 
the mom or the daughter that like performed that first ritual that they gave us flashback scenes to, and now they are still alive somehow. I almost feel like them being part of that group in the past, like I said, and then being reformed almost seems more in line with the character. Uh, but but maybe not the fact that she hasn't told them that she seems to be sick to some degree. She's only told them that like she had a child that was, but clearly she is too. So I don't know. Maybe she'll be a villain at some point. Hard to say. But clearly she and Julia are not on the same page. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic between potential villains. In line with the character, I think is the key to what you said there, because they didn't give any hints throughout this first season that would make you even think she would be a bad person. Even when Alonka's hearing her on the phone that one night, like that seems like a prime example to like throw something in there that could be that could make her seem bad, but she's like genuinely excited that one yeah. of her kids might be going home. And who's she talking to? <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is I want to know who she's on the phone with too. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm re- I really want to hope that she's good and that she's up to something because she has the hourglass and she maybe was involved with the same kind of black magic that Julia was was involved in, but she's using it for good instead of evil and maybe figure it out a way to to maybe heal like one kid like at a time, like every decade or so. Maybe, you know, maybe not that it was Sandra, because like y'all said, Sandra's test was done, you know, before the ritual. But I don't know, maybe she is trying to do something good. So I guess like, you know, Austin, you were the one that mentioned that, you know, Mike Flanagan and the team might be trying to do not only season two, but just ongoing stories. But I don't know. Like, I mean, is there anything that we immediately hope to see? Like, do we want to see like all of the cast return and then maybe, I guess, introduce new kids as potentially they pass away? I know that's kind of a dark thing, but is that what you kind of expect the show to be just to continue to be maybe like a 10 episode season? Most of it is, you know, these episodic stories and then they kind of like slowly continue uh, the overarching story of like the older ghosts and the 1960s plot and who the hell Dr. Stanton is. Is that what we're in for? Or I don't know. Maybe it's a long form thing. I don't know. I was actually surprised we didn't get a new kid this season. It just seemed like with the nature of the show, you you would get a new kid. Because, I mean, they even say like kids are coming in and out of this place all the time. There's always new faces at the Midnight Club table. I thought we would get one this season. I, I think next season we will get some new characters. Really what I'm just looking for is more of a balance between the overarching plot and the short stories. And if, if short stories are going to occupy more of the time in the show, then make the short stories scarier. Because I come to these shows, they release them during the Halloween season. I want to be scared in, the, in these shows, and I, I really wasn't scared from this one. I'm kind of with you, Austin. These come around every Halloween time or so, and you're always expecting, you know, some scares and some horror. And do you guys think there's like a pattern with Flanagan? Like, he's going to do scary, then not as scary, then scary again? Because like, Hill House is scary. Blood Manor was a little bit slower, not as scary. Midnight Mass was not near as scary as Hill House, but definitely more scary than Bly Manor. And then now we got this one is a little bit softer. I'm so curious to see a trailer for The Fall of the House of Usher, because I, I really want to know what the vibe of that show is going to be, because it's, it's Edgar Allan Poe stories, which makes me think it might be more in line with the way this show is, if it's a lot more short stories. We'll see. I mean, at this point, you know, <laughs> we're this many Flanagan projects in where I'm not going to uh repeat what i've said in the past <laughs> like i hope the next one's scary because i've said that like three <laughs> years in a row um i am you know I, i've read some edgar Allan poe i have not read the fall of the house of usher it seems like like the general populace it's kind of a bit more of like a under maybe appreciated uh work all i can really see is like 
Somebody comes to visit his old friend Roderick Usher to cheer him up, and the narrator finds the house and Roderick to be depressing and cheerless. And as the story goes on, the narrator becomes less mentally healthy and more detached from reality like his friend. So it seems to be dealing with madness and kind of uh, fucked up stuff like that. Uh, Mark Hamill, he is in the show. So uh, Mike Flanagan is bringing in uh, Luke Skywalker. So something to think about. The Flannyverse is colliding with the Star Wars universe. <laughs> Flannyverse. I think I've kind of alluded to it after talking about it. Maybe I've kind of shifted a little bit, so we'll see. But let's go ahead and make it official, guys. Uh, the Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and now The Midnight Club. How would you rank these uh, four Mike Flanagan Netflix projects? I would go Midnight Mass, Hill House, Bly Manor, and The Midnight Club. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go Hill House, Midnight Mass, Bly Manor, Midnight Club. Hill House is number one, Midnight Mass. You know what? Maybe I'm crazy, but I just enjoyed, even though it didn't pay off, I enjoyed the second half of just watching Midnight Club so much. More than the first, at least. I think I'm going to put that as number three, and then Blind Manor is four. I haven't, wa- haven't rewatched Blind Manor, but I remember when I watched that, that that was a bit more of a slog than this one for me personally. So I think I'll do that for now. I think, I mean, you could probably put them equal, I think, in my mind, but I, I think... um. Blind Manor, I just enjoyed the setting and like the tone more than yeah. Midnight Club. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, before we close out, that was a fun talk, but it is officially time for the Arnie's Podcast Awards. So this is the part of our show where we just pick something. can be positive. can be negative. can be something anywhere in between. It's just something that we think deserves specific praise. So, Austin and Keith, what do you guys want to give a, a specific award to here? Yeah, I'm going to give... Uh, the drink I didn't know existed, but never won a drink award. Uh, and that's going to be at the Shasta's Bile Tea. That sounds disgusting. And I never want to consume <laughs> that in my body. Hey, man, you're a little low on your brown bile. You might want to go <laughs> pick up some good humor tea. I got one. You know what? It's it's not particularly interesting, but I'm giving the biggest bitch award to Spencer's mom. She's a fucking bitch. <laughs> I don't care that she came to family day. She looked like she wanted to vomit like the second she walked in the door. I hope she dies like super soon. <laughs> Even if it's in a car accident, I just hope she dies. She's a bitch. Like, fuck you. <laughs> There's your reward. <laughs> I hope she dies the same death that Bev Keen did at Midnight Mass. With her head buried in the sand as uh, she's killed by a vampiric curse. That's, that's a fair death. A fair death. <laughs> I'm going to give the... The best non-musician award goes to, what's his name? Freedom Jack. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a good one. How dare you forget his name, Keith? Freedom Jack? That's my favorite musician. I liked whenever Natsuki was like, are you guys in a rock band? And he was like, no, we are a rock band. (laughs) That was pretty cool. (laughs) I would steal a case of beer from a gas station with him. I can relate to that, actually. I don't want to elaborate, but I can relate to it. Uh, so thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really appreciate that so we can continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday for what will be our best podcast of the year our review of halloween ends 
We loved Halloween 2018 and absolutely wanted to bash our fucking heads in whenever we were watching Halloween Kills. Will they get back to it May 2018? Great. Or will the Kills trend continue? I'm not excited to watch this movie. The trailers have made me really uncomfortable because they're so bad. But while I'm not excited to watch the movie, I cannot wait to talk about it with you guys. <laughs> Are you guys as excited as I am? <laughs> I really think we need to consider not doing this episode. <laughs> I do not. I do not want to watch. We have this movie to close out the franchise. <laughs> Could not give two shits about this franchise. I'm honestly like so upset that Austin wants to review something else. I'm like really disappointed in you. <laughs> I just I don't want to watch the movie. <laughs> I don't either. But we'll have so many fun laughs when we watch it <laughs> or review it. I should say this looks like it's going to be worse than Halloween Kills. It does look like that, but maybe it'll surprise us. I hope it is. I'll tell you what. <laughs> maybe Halloween ends will be bad, but it probably won't be worse than One Missed Call, which we talked about on our Halloween bracket. Let the audience know about that, because that was a fun episode. Yeah, so last week we put out our third annual, it's already our third annual Halloween bracket. Uh, we ran through 12 movies and decided what is the best Halloween movie for 2022. So if you want to hear our thoughts and find out what won, be sure to check that episode out. And lastly, we want to hear from you guys, so please send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. What did you think of The Midnight Club? Where does this stack for you when compared to Flanagan's other work? Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. See you next time for the best slash potentially worst film I've ever seen. We'll see you then. See ya. Zach Guilford can give me a shot anytime. Yeah.